Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and I want to welcome the callers and chatters to research at the National Archives and Beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy and history an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. If you have logged in as a guest and you wish to participate in the chat, please sign in through your Facebook account or blog, Talk Radio. Well, Zan Nelson will discuss the occurrence of selling literally hundreds of thousands of enslaved people south to the cotton and sugar fields, with Virginia being the largest exporter and how challenging it is to reunite these ancestors with their place of birth and in many cases with family members who remain behind. Searching for the 16 slave souls south is supported by the Mount Pillar Foundation. To learn more about the 16 enslaved Virginians sold by James Madison in 1834 to William Taylor, who relocated them to Point Coupee Parish, Louisiana. Now, Zan Nelson is a historian and freelance writer specializing in historical investigations with a focus on African-American history. She currently serves as the director of African-American Descendants Project for James Madison's Mount Pillar Foundation. So let me give a warm welcome, a warm welcome back to Zan Nelson to research at the National Archives and beyond. Welcome, Zan. Bernice, thank you very much. That was quite an introduction. 
Well, it is quite a show tonight because I am looking forward to learning more about your research and your search. So why don't you give us just a brief overview about your work, and then we can continue to talk about your search. Okay. Well, um, I am currently working with uh, the Montpelier Foundation uh, to identify and connect with living descendants of those um, who had ancestors enslaved by the Madisons at Montpelier or in the greater Orange County area on uh, other properties. It's been a fascinating 14 months to do that kind of work, and I'm not nearly finished, of course. And there are, well, I've connected or reconnected with a number of people who've done extensive work on their own. And um, we have been very fortunate there, uh, working with the research department, uh, to find some new living descendants. And they've, it's not only been professionally satisfying, but personally satisfying. These people have become new friends. I hear from them almost every week about new connections they're making. And, and so our family is just growing exponentially. We have more work to do there to follow up on a number of leads that will flesh out more of those families and hopefully then result in finding more living descendants who may or may not know um, who their ancestors were during that time period. Um, so it's it's just, I call it my dream job. Um, it's it's very very gratifying. So that's well, then the I know this is your this is your dream job. I, I remember <laughs> when you and I first talked about this. And so give us kind of the big picture of the domestic slave trade between 1809 and 1860, and then take us back to uh, James Madison Montpelier and, and how the, the, all the information you can tell us about these 16 okay. slaves sold to Louisiana. I will. And Bernice, just know, and I hope all the listeners will kind of be interested in this, um, I set out for a week's worth of research in Louisiana, and it's been almost a month, and I'm still here. And, <laughs> and I have made some incredible strides today, but we will, um, we will take it one step at a time. So I, I'm not sure. I know that history teaches it if you get into the real weeds of, of, of history in the 19th century. But in 1809, the United States outlawed the Atlantic slave trade, and meaning, okay, from, we're not going to import any more uh, slaves from outside this country. Um, there was still some black market trading going on. And, it, it, you know, you could say, well, that's a really good thing, except for this. Um, the sugar and cotton uh, uh, industry in the deep south was growing exponentially. And so there was a huge demand for labor. 
if they couldn't import them from the Caribbean or Haiti or Africa, they had to find them somewhere. Coupled with that demand was the fact that the upper southern states were, uh, their agricultural economy was waning. Uh, tobacco was just about played out. They were not cotton states, and we're talking Maryland, Virginia, and North Carolina. They had moved to uh, grain crops and livestock, which didn't take the intensive labor that tobacco, cotton, and sugar did. So here they've got, you know, hundreds of enslaved people and not enough work, and, and the economy was declining. So what happens? They get into the domestic slave trade. And um, just to be clear, the numbers that I'm going to tell you include those who said, okay, I mean, Louisiana was really pushing to bring more people uh, into the state to be businessmen and planters and so forth. And so, and ironically, their laws in in that time period called those people immigrants. Uh, they might have been coming from Virginia, but they were considered immigrants. And so, some some of those folks gave up whatever they were doing in Virginia, and they moved lock, stock, and barrel, including their enslaved population to Louisiana or Texas or Mississippi. And that made up a part of the number of enslaved people who were exported out of those states. The other part, though, in the greatest number, and the three leading states were Maryland, Virginia, and North Carolina, with Virginia leading the, the, the three of those, in numbers of enslaved people that they exported south. Maybe that's kind of a more polite way of saying they sold them south, and we've all heard that expression, and it's not a, it's a very negative one, being sold south. Nearly 500,000 people of color were uh, relocated into those deep south states. And from the work I've done and others have done, I think it's clear that from 1809 to 1860, it was uh, the greatest fear of any enslaved family, and that was the fear of being sold south. They were a, an asset that could be liquidated fairly easily, um, and they were at the mercy of their owner's state in life. If the owner was sick, if the owner died, if the owner had financial trouble, their fate was dependent upon that condition. Um, and, and so let me move then into what happened at um, Montpelier in 1834. James Madison... Um, is deeply in debt, not uncommon for a lot of these slaveholders. He's also in ill health. He dies two years later. He has sold uh, quite a bit of real estate, 
trying to pay off his debts, but it doesn't do the job. So he decides to sell 16 of his enslaved to a man named William Taylor, who was actually born in Orange County, who is a distant cousin of James Madison's, and he and James Madison are both cousins to President Zachary Taylor, or the future president, Zachary Taylor. From what we can tell with a little, we have a bit of correspondence uh, between William Taylor and James Madison, between James Madison and some other people. Um, From what we can tell, this was a private arrangement that did not involve any slave traders. We can't find the record of the sale in the courthouses that we, where we've looked. We have, we, I'll tell you this, out of the 16, we had one given name, and it was a woman by the name of Betty. I, if we have time, I'll tell you a little bit of the story of her. So we pieced together through this correspondence when this sale took place. We've attempted to piece together how they got there, although we're not 100% successful. We just know the sort of the time frame. Um, and we, so I I went to um, the folks there at, at Montpelier and said, can we look into this? Can we look and see if we can find anything about these 16 and perhaps find a living descendant? And they Was were it, very Sam, can I stop that. you for a second? Can yes, I stop you for I'm a second? Sorry. I want to go, I want to go <laughs> back for a minute. Because you said, okay. uh, so you're reading something. What is? What are you reading to find out this information? Okay. This is, uh, uh, Montpelier staff has an enormous research database. And so okay. they have gathered from other databases, et cetera, uh, letters, journals, documents, that okay. pertain to James Madison. Hmm. They don't. They don't get outside of James and Dolly too much. It, uh, but you know, in some of those documents, they will mention a slave's name. Or in this case, uh, James Madison writes to a friend that he owes about two thousand dollars to. The friend uh-huh. has been trying to get him to free his slaves. And he writes to his friend, and he sends him the debt he owes him. He sends him uh, some kind of, I'll call it a check, uh, for $2,000 plus a little interest. And he says, I mean, that, that letter was dated October the 3rd, 1834. And he says, I want to pay you this. I got these funds as a result of selling these people. Um so it puts the time frame in there a little bit. He, um, there is some future correspondence after that date where William Taylor is objecting to one of the individuals who he's purchased. He says she's sick or sickly. That is Betty. He names her and he says the, the, the uh, girl Betty is sickly. And he doesn't come out and say, I don't think I should pay her, but that's pretty evident. Pay for her. 
so we have some time frames in there because in that letter he says, when I arrived at my plantation on November 26th, all the slaves were there. So I'm, I'm hoping I'm not jumping around too much. Uh, but okay, so the other part to what you've said is that you know how they got there. How did they get there? Well, I don't, I can't, in all fairness, I can't say I know exactly how they got there. I am speculating. Okay. I've read a lot about how the slaves were moved, transported to Louisiana. The least expensive way of doing it was to force march them overland down the, uh, what they call the Great, um, oh, what was that? Uh, it's, it's down the Shenandoah Valley into Tennessee and then to Natchez, where they were put on the Mississippi River in a steamboat and taken to New Orleans. Okay? Now, uh-huh. the other way, which was more expensive and a lot faster, was to put them on a steamship either out of Richmond, which was the second largest port for transporting slaves, second largest to New Orleans, or it could have been Alexandria, or it could have been Baltimore or Norfolk. Then they took the, the um, I'm going to call it the outside route, which was going out to the Atlantic Ocean, coming down around the coast of Florida and up through the Gulf into uh, New Orleans that way. Now, what a lot of people and listeners already know is that during that time frame, uh, because of the laws forbidding exporting slaves from other countries, uh, New Orleans was the largest port for importing um, slaves to be sold. And so they required, both at the port of departure and the port of entry at New Orleans, that the ship's captains provide a slave manifest, which identified by name all the slaves that were on the ship. Sometimes there was additional information it would give also the names of the people involved in their shipping, which most often was were slave traders. Um, and it, it was a signed affidavit that these, these uh, passengers, this cargo, was not from some other country. And those manifests are archived out of New Orleans, and you can see a lot of those online. Uh, we studied those um, very, very closely. Now, we didn't have any names except for Betty's um, and William Taylor, who was the owner when they left Virginia and the owner when they arrived in Louisiana. We couldn't find anything that indicated those 16 from Montpelier um, came through the port of New Orleans. Uh, Now that we are a little closer on their names, we will go back and look at that again. But it is my sense, I've developed a theory 
that they never came through New Orleans. And that theory, if you want to hear that now, is based on the fact that um, Taylor's plantation, he had two, but one of them was right on the Mississippi River. And um, my thinking is that because they were purchased for his use, and there is a law in Louisiana that addresses that, that he they they stopped at his plantation and debarked off the ship there. I believe they were force marched to Natchez. I have no proof of that. But if they were put on a ship in um, Richmond or Norfolk, they would have come through the port of New Orleans. And because uh, that is sort of out of the way of Taylor's plantation, I don't believe that happened. I believe he So tell us, Zan, exactly where were his two plantations located? I know you said on the water, but where in Louisiana? Okay. And that to, uh, in, a, in a parish called, well, they pronounce it Point Capi uh, or Point, Point Coupe uh, Parish, which is just northwest of Baton Rouge. Um, across on the western side of the Mississippi River. That's where one plantation was, and it's taken a lot of study, but we have located both of them. That one was called Lakeland, and it was about 2,000 acres, and it was right on the Mississippi River, often described in deeds in a newspaper advertisement as directly opposite Bayou Sarah, and and. Bayou Sarah's on the maps, and we've actually found maps that identify Lakeland. The other plantation he had is still in that parish, but a little farther north, and it was on a on a body of water called Bayou Latinash. It was 7,500 acres, and often called, well, infrequently it was called the Briars. It was more often called Latinash. Um, and there's interesting stories about Lakeland that, that feed how we've come to know uh, <laughs> excuse me, uh, the names of these slaves and which ones we believe are from Virginia. So well, let me Zan, right now, there. Zan, Zan, right now we it looks like we have a caller. Uh, someone would like to make a comment. And so let's see what they have to say, and we'll come back to uh, you talking about this research. Uh, Area code 504, you're live. You have a question or a comment? Greetings, greetings. I was just so excited to hear the the story for today. Uh, I live in New Orleans. My maternal grandmother is from the exact place where the Taylor Plantation is on Latinish. Uh, I often see the house when I'm going to visit relatives there. And my grandmother's great-grandfather was from Virginia. So I was just uh, excited to hear the topic when I read the description of the show. But I'm very much familiar with the Taylor House. And, and the place is called Ennis. It's, today it's called yep. Ennis. <laughs> 
Yes. It's on Bayou Latinish. Yeah. Yes. Okay, uh, well, Zan, you may be. Yes, may you I may speak be with him? You're in a descendant. I'm not sure how this works. Yes, you're grand uh, Sir, what is your grandfather's name or your great-grandfather? My, that, let me see. That would have been my third great-grandfather. And my third great-grandfather there, his name was Joe Brown. I got that from death certificate of my great-great-grandmother. Okay. And, I know uh, that his, there have been some Browns that have shown up in my research, um, and I would love to be able to follow up with you on this. If you, uh, sometime during the show, if you will take down my uh, contact information. Um, okay. I am actually going back up there tomorrow. I know well the Taylor House that you're talking about. And last Sunday, I visited the little church. It's called Little Zion that is very near the Taylor House. My my great-great-grandfather was the pastor of that church. He founded that church. And the Nora pastor, Davis. The current pastor is my cousin, Fagan Davis, and Edward Davis was my great-great-grandfather who founded the church. Okay, I just met last Sunday with Yvonne and Betty. Um, Yvonne, Yvonne, wait a minute, wait a minute. Okay, this is where the brown was. Yvonne Dixon uh, Terrence and Betty Dixon Antoine, and their great-grandfather was Edward Davis, who married Virginia Brown. That's my (laughs) great-great-grandparents. Okay. Well, we have and a lot to talk wow. about. Yes, we have great, a lot to talk about. I have a picture. I'm looking at a picture of them right now. <laughs> Both of it's them. so exciting. It's just. But Virginia. It's like Virginia, opening. Go ahead. No, I just want to say Virginia's father was Joe Brown. My great great grandmother, Jenny. Her daddy was Joe Brown. Her mother was Caroline. Okay, Joe Brown. And Caroline, all right. Caroline, yes. According to the death certificates of her and one of her brothers, York Brown. York Brown was one of Virginia's brothers. Okay. And you're saying York, Y-O-R-K? Y-O-R-K. That was one of Joe Brown's sons. Virginia was one of the daughters, and I think there was some more siblings. And there are cousins there who know more about that side of the family in Tranquil but the current okay. pastor of that church is Fagan Davis, a cousin. Right. Well, I'm so glad that you're listening, and I'm glad that you've called in, and I want to talk to you some more. Okay. I'll um, listen for your contact information. Okay. Wonderful. Thank you Wonderful. so much. I'll continue to listen. Oh, thank you. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. Bernice? Okay. Yes. Well, I know that's a big <laughs> surprise. Oh gosh, it's just, you know it's what makes this work so thrilling is when you get a, you you get connected with people like that gentleman. Um, so let's let's bring this back to where we are, or you know where you'd like me to talk. 
Well, um, first of all, I do have a question coming out of the chat. How many other slaves were at Lakeland besides the the 16? Lakeland, well, over 30 uh, – in the 1850 census – now, I can't tell you that this was all Lakeland because he owned okay. Lakeland and Latinash at the same time. But in the 1850 and 1860 slave schedules – the tailors are listed with an approximately 112 slaves. Now, over a period of 1831 to 1865, that number stayed about the same, but the people changed a bit as some would pass away and others would be born. So we have been filtering through probably about eight, 130 or so names. We've reduced that down four and just recently probably down to about a dozen who could be the candidates for the 16 who came from Montpelier. Okay. You want to know how we did What we're going to do right now is take a quick break, come back, because I want you to talk more about the names that you have now, and okay. what kind of actual research you're doing on the ground in Point Coupe. So this is just a quick okay. break, and we'll be right back. All right. Welcome back to Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and you can join me every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, where I will have an expert to share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy and history questions. Remember, all of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. All of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast, and they can be downloaded from Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, TuneIn.com, and Stitcher.com. Well, you have been listening to Zan Nelson discuss 16 Slaves Sold South. Now, Zan, I have a question... And this is really back to how you, you're saying you reduced the number down. How exactly did you reduce the number of people down to, let's say, you said about 12 likely candidates? Right. 
Okay, let me step back a second um, to what we did before we ever came down here and what we've done since, and I'll try and make this very concise. We've spent about four months in advance of coming to Louisiana checking all repositories, both in Virginia and Louisiana, in search of information regarding William Taylor and his wife, Lucy. Um, we also looked at slave manifests, et cetera, et cetera. But we were handicapped by not having any names uh, or even potential names except for the one Betty for the enslaved people. So we knew we had to search uh, for the Taylors. And we discovered that there was a diary that Taylor had written, archived in the uh, LSU library, and called several courthouses and learned that the courthouse at Point Capini had a lot of uh, records going back to the early 1800s. So we went down there looking for the diary, looking for a will, looking for any kind of conveyance records um, where uh, Taylor would have perhaps bought or sold a slave, bought or sold property. We knew he had two pieces of property. We weren't positive where they were, so we were looking at old maps and at newspaper advertisements when he attempted to sell them um, and eventually have been able to com to identify uh, absolutely where each of those plantations lay. So in his diary, which was the first thing we looked at when we got here, were detailed records of the uh, enslaved people. He would make note when uh, someone had a child, the child was baptized, we had the mother's name, the child's name. Often he would say um, uh, so-and-so, wife, wife of. Um, he kept, he, we had two very detailed lists by name. One is for shoes. Um, so we had all the slaves' name broken down to gender uh, and who got shoes, the similar list or who got articles of clothing. He had other notations of things that would go on within the lives of the slaves. For example, there were several notations from people who ran away, why they ran away, what their, they were all caught, what their punishment was. Interestingly, there were uh, three um, and one particular in his diary, man, that he identified with a, a descriptive surname. The man's name was Jack, and the descriptive surname was Virginia. And he said that his wife's name was Mary. They had a son born in 1837. Remember, this sale occurred in 1834. The son's name was Madison. Well, I about flipped out when I read that. Um, and then just to further that along, and I looked in the 1870 census records for the area around those two plantations. I found a group of people whose names appeared in, in these records from Taylor, 
and some of those were in the courthouse, for example, his inventory after his will. Those same names were living in this area near the plantation, and I could see where they were from. And it said they were born in Virginia. And it would, and there was one woman whose name was Mary Virginia. Now, I haven't been able to uh, find anything past 1870 for her. I have not been able to find yet a Jack Virginia. I have not been able to find a Madison Virginia. Uh, but I'm still looking. So let me tell you something else that made this... Um, narrowing these down fairly significant. In 1831, William Taylor bought Lakeland, a plantation, a sugar plantation of about 2,000 acres from an estate uh, owned, uh, had been owned by Ben Poitras, who was very famous in that, uh, in that parish. With that purchase of 2,000 acres came 87 slaves. We have every single name of those 87 slaves. And we have those names because there was a condition of that sale. Porter's estate said, you may not separate those slaves from this property. After 25 years, they are to be set free. If they are too old or infirm, you are to give them a lifetime estate. 1835, William Taylor either had forgotten that condition or hoped nobody was looking, and he sold eight of those slaves. The Porter's heirs sued him, and all that information is there in the courthouse. Long story short, it was appealed to the Louisiana Supreme Court. Um, the bottom line is that Taylor knew he could never, ever sell one of those slaves again so, without selling the entire plantation. So two or three times he attempts to sell the plantation. And in every single conveyance, he lists those who must go with the plantation, and then he also lists, but not these. So we have probably a minimum of six lists between the deeds and the diary that we are cross-referencing, and most of those 87 poisonous slaves were Louisiana-born, and they carry those French Creole kinds of names, and uh, many were baptized. We found those records in the Catholic Church there in, in Point Capri Parish. We took those names of those who were accepted from those deeds, and there's, um, there's about, by 1850, when the inventory is done, there may be um, a little more than two dozen, uh, but we extracted from those uh, the names of, of the children, basically, who were born after 1834. Uh, so we know they're not born in Virginia. Then we, 1870, 
in that same area, we have the Freedmen's Bureau records labor contract for those who were signed on for the Taylor Plantation in 1867. And now we're seeing first and last names. And by 1870, we're able to see where they were born. So that's how we have drilled this more than 100 and probably 120 slaves down to about a dozen. And the names are consistent in uh, these records I just mentioned. And I can give you those names because we haven't been able to uh, identify yes, any please, please. threads with and all of them. We, and okay, we have so, someone, we have someone uh, that's indicating that she is a descendant of the Poitras slaves. Okay. All right. So, and you know that we're concentrating on the Virginia slaves rather than the Poitras sure. slaves, but. Right. This work opens doors for all of that. So uh, the names that we have come up with that we know were born in Virginia are, I'm just going to give you surnames, Davis, Cooper, Gothney, Virginia. That was that Mary Virginia I told you about. McDonald, Long. I'm trying to think what, uh, if I've got more. Um, uh, Washington Cook. Okay, I think that's, I'm going through my notes right now. And those are the ones that we are focusing on right now. Now, we have all the other names of all the Portress people. Of course, Julian Portress had like four or five plantations. So he had hundreds of slaves. We have the names of 87 of them. They're not the names I just read out here. Um, I'm going to pause there for a sec. Well, let me tell you this, uh, Bernice. We have focused. Um, I have been on the ground there. As you know, we've gone to the courthouse. We've gone across the river and looked at church records. We've looked at, we've worked with somebody who has provided baptismal records uh, from the diocese, the Catholic Diocese of Baton Rouge, uh, and it's identified as those owned by Taylor who were baptized um, at St. Francis Church in Point Capi. Uh, the Freedmen's Bureau records, um, and then working with individuals who are there now, and they have been just a huge help to me. And I also have been doing, you know, that descendants uh, uh, by generation looking for living ones on Ancestry.com and other places. And I found two people who had had some of these names in their family trees on Ancestry.com. I have been focused on the Davises and the Longs. And today, and it's why I'm a little bit, you know, kind of beside myself, but today I have talked with two different lines from Luke and Marianne Long, 
who were enslaved by William Taylor. They were born in Virginia, born prior to 1834. I have found two families of living descendants, one from uh, Luke's son, Reuben, and one from Luke's son, Allegen. And it has just been an incredible day with those two discoveries. They did not know how, I mean, they had not gotten their ancestry research back that far. And this now is I've amazing. I am so excited just listening to this. <laughs> You're not the only one. <laughs> and you talked to them today. I did. I did. Well, one of them I meet tomorrow, but I have okay. got, gotten confirmed that he's deci- he descends from Reuben, and and the others I met this morning. And what I told them because I, you know, I never want to mislead anybody. I can document that both those lines descend from Luke and Mary Ann Long. And I can document that they were owned by William Taylor and that they were born in Virginia prior to 1834. I cannot prove with total certainty that they came from Montpelier. I will continue to cross those T's and dot those I's. But but to date, in looking at more than 50 repositories and collections of documents and talking to individuals, I have no indication that William Taylor purchased any other slaves from Virginia. Now, I'm not saying that he didn't. I just have not found any indication of that as of yet. Only those 16 that he bought from James Madison. This is wonderful. So what was the general reaction of the the individual you spoke to today? Well, I met with her and her mother, and they were just, it was like, so they brought their documentation, and I brought mine, and they're going, okay, the, the mother's saying, okay, well, my father was William Collins, and I'm going, wait a minute, wait a minute, and I pull my notes up, and I'm, I, there's William Collins, and he's living, in the, and I'm saying, okay, I have him in 1930, he's living with his uncle, Mason, and the mother's going, oh, Mason, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it was like we were having a little party. I mean, it was so exciting. And I was able to fill in a number of blanks for them. And I, Bernice, I asked them, I said, because I knew about Reuben and his line and that I was very close to finding a living descendant living in Point Capee. And I said, have you guys ever had a family reunion? <laughs> and they said, no, not not in many, many, many years. I said, you might want to think about doing that. <laughs> so anyway, it's just, you know, it makes you giggle. And you're so happy that you've, <laughs> you're part of putting these families back together. You know? Yes. So anyway. Yes. 
Now, with this project, I mean, certainly you're 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 trying to reconnect. But what will ultimately happen once you have connected everyone to Taylor that takes you back to James Madison? Well, of course, what Montpelier wants is Montpelier wants wants them to join their family, if you will. So. I, you know, in June, I was going to do this in the closing, but let me just say this. One, the, the goal for Montpelier is, is to be a facilitator through me and through other research work they're doing to bring these people full circle, to bring them back to Montpelier, not to relive some kind of tragedy of slavery, but to celebrate the humanity, the, 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 the reality that these people were true individuals with values and, and who had learned to eke out something important despite slavery, despite being sold south. So Montpelier wants to celebrate that, and we can't do that, of course, unless we can touch and and welcome and, and include and engage all those descendants or as many of them as possible. So that's the ultimate goal. And then what the families do with that information is entirely up to the families. Um, yes, yes. They may want to, I mean, have a reunion or they may want to learn more about their ancestors. Mm-hmm. That would be their call. That would be their call. Well, I have a question for you, though. Uh, do you have any information on how did Madison acquire his slaves? I mean, did he purchase them or inherit them? Or how, just how did all of that take place? I think that's a really good question. And to the best of my knowledge, Madison's slaves were um, inherited from his father, and most of that uh, family of enslaved people were by natural increase. In other words, his Madison's grandfather, I'm sure, purchased slaves. Um, but, but then uh, they did not sell them. Uh, to our knowledge, we have no record of there being any sales. Now, there may—I'm not saying they didn't sell anybody, uh, but I think the numbers grew through what they call natural increase. And then, as um, uh, his grandfather died, he passed the the uh, um, James Madison Sr. acquired through inheritance. Uh, the slaves, and then when he died, he um, bequeathed them to James and James's brothers and sisters. Um, and so, to my knowledge, that's how he acquired his his slaves. I don't have a knowledge of any records where he purchased slaves. I do know a couple of situations. I think where he hired. Uh, some slaves that you know were on somebody else's plantation, um, but not where he purchased any. 
And to your knowledge, um, is there any connection between Madison and the Lewises of Warner Hall? Ooh, I know of the Lewises of Warner Hall. I can't answer that question without going back to the records. I just don't have it in my brain, Bernice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you're you're heading back to Louisiana, and so what what type of research will you conduct over the next few uh, few weeks? Well, what I've got to do tomorrow, I'm going back to the parish. I'm going to interview um, this one new descendant. I am going to interview another. Uh, older lady um, that uh, I've interviewed her brother, who's 98, um, who said that his grandfather was from Virginia. Um, and it was too good of an opportunity to to not pass up. I don't know if he was part of the Montpelier uh 16, but because there were so many that came from Virginia. But um, so, but she apparently has a little book where somebody's been doing some research. And so I'm gonna I'm gonna look at that. I'm gonna go back to the courthouse and look at some more material tomorrow. And then I head home on Saturday. And what I will be doing over the next many weeks is going through logging all these lists onto this sort of Excel sheet where we can, you know, look at who who's staying on the list over 30 years, 20 years, um, and doing a bit more research now that we have names. We'll go back to the Slave Manifest. We'll go back to Montpelier's database. I do have a, a list of possible names of his slaves that could have been sold. But what we've come to is that he didn't have, we don't have a complete list of all those that he owned. Uh, for example, he, we may not have nearly the names of those who worked in the field. Um, and I'm pretty sure most of those that were sold were field hands, not you know, working in the house or with some special skill. But we will be fleshing out this information so that it is more of a complete story. And I will continue to look for living descendants of these names. I, I You know, my big wish is to find Jack or Madison, Virginia. Um Jack has a very interesting and compelling story, and we probably don't have time to tell it tonight. So, anyway. Well, if you want to tell it, we do have a few minutes. <laughs> well, I don't know. It might bring tears to somebody. But um, in in Taylor's diary, he he writes, I mentioned that he writes of those that have run away. And Jack apparently runs away multiple times. And one particular incident was uh, logged in with pretty great detail. Apparently, uh, not only Taylor, but his overseer was standing there when Jack decided to run 
the second or third time, and they called out to him to stop or they were going to shoot him. And Taylor writes that Jack just ran faster. Now, we know Jack is from Virginia um, because uh, Taylor designates him with that surname of Virginia, and there would be no other reason why he would do that. Um, the overseer shot him using some some type of buckshot, so it was not mortal. And uh, Taylor says that they caught him about two days later, brought him back, had the doctor attend his wounds, and Taylor says, I hope he doesn't run again. And you can't help but wonder if Jack's trying to get back home. Um, and we don't know. But we know that Mary was his wife, and he had a son named Madison. Mary, Virginia, in 1870, has two, three other children living in her household. So it gives us something to look for. But I have searched and searched so far and cannot find a Jack or a Madison with anything that sounds like a Virginia as a last name. I don't know whether they survived, changed their names, moved back to Virginia. I don't know, but I would like to find out. Oh, yes, we all would love to know where, what happened. So mm. how can individuals uh, get in touch with you or how are we going to continue to know what's happening as you continue your search for okay. descendants? All right. First of all, I have a Facebook page that I post all my uh, all my writings on that I do for the uh, Orange County Review weekly uh, column, and I've put a lot of this in there. Uh, there will be a report that gets written up, um, and I can send to to anybody that is interested. So let me give you uh, some contact information. Okay. Um, okay. Phone number five four zero seven one eight. Three four six five. Email okay, that's five four eight seven one no, eight five four five four zero. Yes, seven one eight. Mhm. Okay. All right. I have two email addresses. One is M as in Mary, and then a series of numbers. And they are one six four three nine at aol dot com. The, the other email address is a Montpelier email address, and it's descendants dot project at Montpelier dot org. And my Facebook page is Zan's Place, Z-A-N-N apostrophe S-P-L-A-C-E. Say it again. Zan's Place, Z-A-N-N-S-P-L-A-C-E. 
Okay. Now, Bernice, I'm a, I'd like to real quickly give Montpelier a plug because I'm so grateful that they are supporting this. And on June 4th of this year, they will officially be opening a new and permanent exhibit at Montpelier on um, on the subject of slavery. And they are also um, reproducing, if you will, the South Yard, and they will open a portion of that also at the same time. The South Yard was the uh, slave village of those who served in the house. And um, Montpelier is so excited about the story that they are telling and the people that they are talking about and their lives. And so anybody who can get there on June 4th, uh, should come, and if they can't come on June 4th, they need to make sure they put it on their uh, list of things to do in 2017 after June 4th. Uh, and they can, um, if they contact me, I can put them on a mailing list. Okay, great. great. And thank and you, Bernice, to, for to giving visit. me this opportunity. Well, Zan, thank you so much for sharing your research with us. And, and it is very exciting that you're trying to reconnect. So thank you very much. And I want to just thank everyone else for joining us tonight. And please remember, your ancestors left footprints. Therefore, you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history, family records, and research at the National Archives and beyond. You can continue this discussion on the research at the National Archives and beyond and Afrogenia's Facebook pages. And also remember to listen to the African Roots podcast with Angela Walton Raji on Friday and also watch for the Black Progen Live with host Nika Soul Smith. Thank you so much for joining research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This show is sponsored by your host, Bernice BB's Genealogy and Educational Services LLC. And my website is www.genie.com. Beroots.com. I look forward to all of you joining me next Thursday. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett. Good night, everyone. Good night, Zan. Good night.
With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.